0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 29, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. With the struggles over debt, deficits, war, and abuses of civil liberties, it's important to remember that it's been worse in the United States. Rob McDonald is an assistant professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He discussed a few episodes following the Revolutionary War. This is a portion of a speech by McDonald delivered this week at Cato University in Annapolis, Maryland. The theme is, is really multiple. It's, it's about, in many respects, the unlikely triumph of American revolutionaries in this project of independence. But it's also about the results of that bold experiment unto which they entered. An experiment that had results that I think were very positive for liberty, in many respects, but an experiment that exposed them to some of the very dangers that the members of the founding generation predicted. And, of course, it's easy enough to declare independence. I don't want to understate the significance of Jefferson's achievement, the achievement of the members of the Continental Congress who adopted his Declaration of Independence. But it's, it's one thing to say that you've thought you've for the revolution. There are also those who had to fight for the revolution. And it's worth remembering. We were, I was talking uh, to someone just a few minutes ago about this. It's worth remembering that these individuals who we nowadays see on the dollar bill or, or on Mount Rushmore who have you know monuments dedicated to their honor at the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C., these individuals were violent revolutionaries. These individuals, you know, Washington Wooden Teeth, the ultimate establishment man, was a violent revolutionary who took up arms against his government. And, and this is a, a really gutsy sort of move. And when the people who signed their names to the Declaration of Independence pledged each other, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They meant it. And some of them lost their lives. And many of them lost their fortunes. Luckily, I think they kept their honor. But it wasn't easy. When you think about the whole project of independence and and, and what makes it so difficult, it's not just that we proclaim ourselves free of the British government and suddenly, were independent Americans. The British wouldn't let us off the hook so easily. We had to fight for our independence. And a war to achieve freedom is, is really like playing with fire. James Madison knew wars very well. He, of course, was a young man during our war for independence. He was president of the United States... During the War of 1812, happily he had, had the wisdom to realize that of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. And by that he meant debts and taxes and expansions of government power in time of crisis and encroachments upon civil liberty. And during the war for independence, especially as the war for independence dragged on, it became, for many, more and more doubtful that this revolution would actually achieve the aims for which it had been started. You think back throughout history, how many revolutions, how many people's revolutions have ended up merely taking one authoritarian regime and replacing it with another. You think about Caesar. You can think about Cromwell, glancing forward from the revolution. You don't have to go far, just think about Napoleon. Thankfully, we had a Washington who understood that the point of the revolution was, was not that, that men were giving him power, but that he was fighting to give power to other men. In the early days of the Revolution, of course, there was a great deal of enthusiasm for the fight. At Lexington, at Concord, when the alarm went out, that the British had marched out of Boston to, to take the colonists' weapons. People from the surrounding communities descended by the thousands. And at Lexington... The British marched through, but it conquered. They were turned back. And on that long road back to Boston, the British encountered some of the worst fighting they'd ever experienced. And it was all sorts of Americans, all sorts of regular, everyday people who took up arms to fight for their liberty, to fight against a government that had finally proven correct. Some of the most radical. Conspiracy theorists of the 1760s. The British turned people like James Otis and Sam Adams into prophets. And and, and thus you have folks who had previously taken up arms in behalf of the British. Like an 80-year-old gentleman named Samuel Weddamore, who lived in Monotomy, Massachusetts. Regular farmer, 80 years old. He knew the British were coming. He knew that they were marching back to Boston. And he was ready. He loaded his musket. He loaded two pistols. He, he pulled out a sword that he had captured from the body of a French soldier he had slain during the French and Indian War. And he got behind his stone wall. And as the British marched down the road, he took out his musket and he fired one shot and he took out a red coat. And then he fired a second and he took out yet another British soldier. And, and, and the British soldiers, they, where is this coming from? And they see this, this old man behind this wall and they, and they attack. And they climb over the wall and at this point he's got his, his pistols out and he takes out a third British soldier. And a crowd of British soldiers are stabbing him with their bayonets, while he flails about with his sword. And they stab him. This is such a great story. They stab him, how many times? Thirteen times. Like once for each colony. Thirteen times. And they leave him for dead. But you know what? 80-year-old Samuel Wedemore doesn't die. (laughs) He lives. He lives for another 18 years to die as a 98-year-old free citizen of the independent United States. You can't make up stuff like that. His wife, Faith Wedemore, was upstairs in the second floor window with a crossbow. That, That I did make up. But the first part was true. But the initial enthusiasm for the war... Of course, wore down. As is often the case in, in, in wars, what seems so glorious and wonderful in the beginning begins to reveal itself as a really terrible and horrible ordeal. As the losses mounted, as the casualties mounted, as the dislocations mounted, as the inflation mounted, governments of these new independent states, when they wrote their constitutions, the governments had very few taxing powers. Continental Congress had no real taxing powers, except for one. They could print more money and devalue the currency that was already in the pockets of the people. And this put a great strain, of course, on the economy, as well as on the army the soldiers who were paid in this rapidly depreciating script. And we uh, weathered the war for independence in the north. The first uh, strategy of the British was to try to gain control of the Hudson River and amputate the, the rebellious New England colonies from the rest of what would become the United States. And failing to do that, they turned their attention to the South where they thought they could encourage an uprising of enslaved people and make the most of the tensions that existed there between white settlers who lived on the coast and white settlers who lived in the backcountry. But finally, Cornwallis did something. And you know, I, I teach at West Point. I, I'm a civilian. I don't, uh, I, I don't pretend to have any great knowledge of the military or military history, but there is one thing that I, I do always tell my cadets, and I feel fairly secure in giving this advice. Don't do what Cornwallis did. Don't retreat to a peninsula. <laughs> because Washington and Rochambeau will surround you by land, and Admiral de Grasse will surround you by sea. And at Yorktown, essentially, we won the war for independence. But we did not win our independence there. The war officially continued. treaty negotiations were ongoing. Washington withdrew his army up to Newburgh, New York, back on the Hudson River. Had to keep it alive so that we still had leverage during these negotiations. So that we could continue the, uh, the course toward real victory. And what happened was a lot of his own officers started to grumble. A lot of his own soldiers began to look past the revolution and, and think about all of the sacrifices that they had made. And they began to say, well, what about me? What about pay? What about pensions? What about land? What about promises that have been made and haven't been kept? What about promises that we want our governments to make for us? And some people actually started to spread rumors about the possibility of the army marching west and leaving the United States undefended. Or worse, marching south toward the Continental Congress with weapons drawn to force the government to meet with their demands. And when Washington got wind of this conspiracy, his, his, his reaction couldn't have been stronger. I mean, this was exactly what we didn't want. This, this is how we would snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Washington assembled the officers at Newburgh. He... Uh, Stood before them, he had prepared remarks. He squinted at the paper. He asked his officers to look with utmost horror and detestation on anyone who wishes, under any specious pretenses, to overturn the liberties of our country. But it wasn't so much what he said as what he did. He reached into his pocket at that moment and he pulled out something that no one had ever seen him old before, a pair of spectacles, and he put them on, and he said, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in your service, and at that moment, it hit them, I mean, here was Washington, he had been with the army almost since the very beginning, he had exposed himself to every danger, he had bullet holes through his coat. He could have spent this war living happily, prosperously, contentedly down at Mount Vernon. He was the richest man in all of Virginia. He had the most to lose of anyone assembled there. And yet, without complaint and without pay, he fought for these long years. And at that moment, according to people who were present at Newburgh, there wasn't a dry eye in the building. I mean, it just hit the officers that here was a man who stood to lose so much, who, who, who risked everything, and here they were complaining and risking everything for which they also had fought and sacrificed. And in really the greatest moment of the American Revolution, Washington, after the Treaty of Paris had been signed, after victory had been secured, came here to Annapolis, where the Congress had assembled, and tendered his resignation like Cincinnatus before him. Having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted. You guys are the bosses. I here offer my commission and take leave of all the employments of public life. And just like that, Washington ceases to be a general and becomes once again a civilian. Here is a man who has embodied the greatest principles of the revolution. Having secured the liberty of his country, he returns to private life and stares down the temptations of power. This is one of the things that makes the American Revolution so remarkable. It is a war not only to transfer power from one government to the other, but it is a war to disperse power, to return it to the people from whom it rightfully comes. So, what a great victory! And in many ways, what an unlikely one! What a singular moment in the history of the human race! that this would happen, and it happened right here in Annapolis, Maryland. And of course, in Annapolis in the 1780s, people would gather again to discuss the inadequacies as they perceived them of the Articles of Confederation, which led to the convention at Philadelphia in 1787, where a new constitution would be drawn up claiming its authority from we the people. A constitution that is... In many respects, a, a document that, that strikes a really interesting balance. Because it is a license of government power. It does specifically authorize certain powers for the government. But it's also a restraining order. It says not only what the government can do, but also what the government cannot do. Particularly American sort of balance. And when the Constitution went into effect, when George Washington was called back from Mount Vernon, he was called back to public service, he, of course, assembled around him a group of advisors that's truly impressive. And among them, you have his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, as well as his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, his Vice President is John Adams. I mean, this is, in many respects, the ultimate dream team. And yet, from the very beginning, people began to disagree over what the Constitution actually meant. They began to disagree over what powers it had actually granted. And Alexander Hamilton, the the, the first proponent of this idea that you could read between the lines of the Constitution and find powers there that are only implicitly granted, starts to authorize and argue for a number of measures that increase the power of the central government at the expense of the autonomy of the states. And if you were a Jeffersonian Republican, a member of this newly emergent faction that, that, that stood ready to oppose Hamilton, you viewed Hamilton and his plans as being thoroughly and fundamentally wrong, as being absolutely almost evil. There he is, evil Hamilton. <laughs> And the politics of the 1790s could not have been more bitter. In part because the people believed that the stakes could not have been higher. Think of all that they had fought for. All that they had won. All that they had achieved with such great sacrifices throughout the war for independence. And and here they believed was a man who was essentially a counter-revolutionary, who wanted to return us to something like a British-style government, like the one from which we had declared our independence. And the Federalists, who allied with Hamilton, the Republicans, who allied with Jefferson, put forward as presidential candidates in 1796, and again in 1800, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. Two men who had been great friends during the independence movement. Who had become great enemies during the heated divisions of the 1790s. And the first time in 1796, John Adams won. Second time in 1800, in 1801, Jefferson was elected. And, and Jefferson really viewed his election as a restoration of the principles of 76. As the revolution of 1800, as he later described it. And when he took the oath of office on March 4th, 1801, the first president to do so in our brand new national capital, in his inaugural address, he, uh, he spelled out what he stood for. Now, During the campaign, of course, Federalists, uh, they wanted to, to make clear what they thought he stood for um, and who he stood against. John Adams, for various reasons, had become less of an appealing candidate Federalists had issues with him. Certainly, the, the, the Jeffersonian Republicans had issues with John Adams, the man who illustrated quite nicely Madison's warning that war could breed uh, violations of civil liberties. It wasn't even a real war. It was the quasi-war with France of the late 1790s that caused John Adams to sign into law the Alien and Sedition Acts. The First Amendment was only seven years old. The ink was barely dry, and already the government is making laws that restrict freedom of speech and freedom of the press. So not even the Federalists really want to advance uh, John Adams as their candidate. It's, it's an attack upon Thomas Jefferson that they mount. People are told to compare Jefferson not with Adams, but with Washington, who had died just a few months earlier in December of 1799. Washington, of course, they said, stood for order and law and religion. Jefferson, however, underneath the image of Jefferson is a pile of, of books written by radical theorists like Voltaire, and Condorcet, and Tom Paine. Over Washington's head is a laurel wreath emitting rays of light, whereas over Jefferson you see a snuffed-out lamp. But Jefferson won. And when Jefferson took office, he spelled out exactly what he thought the national government should do and what would make it a good one and what the Constitution authorized and what the people needed. And it really wasn't much. It was a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits, of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And Jefferson was remarkably successful at enacting his plan. During his presidency, he radically cut federal spending. During the course of his presidency, he paid off one-third of the debt that he had inherited from the administration's of George Washington and John Adams, while at the same time repealing all internal taxes. This was a remarkable achievement. One that occurred despite the fact that during Jefferson's presidency, we spent close to $15 million to buy the territory of Louisiana. For Jefferson, this, uh, this amazing offer tendered to us in 1803, by Napoleon, to buy all of this territory to the west of the Mississippi River, effectively doubling the size of the United States without firing a shot. This was an amazing opportunity. When Jefferson uh, thought about what obtaining Louisiana would mean, its benefits were multiple. The first was that it would probably keep America out of wars that, that competition for this land would almost inevitably draw us into. Jefferson said that if France maintains possession of this land, Jefferson said this, he said, we will have to marry ourselves to Britain and the British Navy. Essentially, our neutrality would be compromised and we will have to go back to the orbit of the British Empire. But if we got this land, we would be able to continue to insulate ourselves from Europe and all of its troubles. You know, we had been blessed by, by the fact that the Atlantic Ocean provided this wonderful moat to insulate us from the, the struggles and the strife of Europe. If we could hold the land to our west, we would be insulated further still. And in addition to that, Great fact. There was the great opportunity that Jefferson saw to preserve and protect the Republican character of the American people. During the 1700s and on into the 1800s, America's population doubled every 20 years. At some point, we would run out of land. At some point, this nation of of virtuous farmers would begin to change and begin to lose their character. You remember the classical Republican cycle. You remember the story about the development of civilizations. You start off a land of virtue, where people are independent and hardworking and good neighbors, where they're self-sufficient and self-reliant, where they involve themselves in government for the true general good, and not for their own selfish good, not as people seeking special favors, not as people seeking to enrich themselves. But all that hard work does pay off with growth, with development, with, with, with rising strength. This is how Jefferson saw the future. When he saw the future, he looked west. But Hamilton... When he saw the future, he looked east. He once wrote a, a really revealing memo to George Washington where he just kind of let it slip. Hamilton said, with, with British Canada on our left and Latin America on our right. If Canada's on our left and Latin America's on our right, which way are we facing? What's Hamilton's orientation? He's looking across the ocean. He sees the future of America in Europe. He wants us to develop along sort of a British commercial model. And emulating Great Britain is not a horrible thing. Prior to the existence of the United States, Britain was the freest and most prosperous nation on the planet. But this is not where Jefferson wanted America to go. Because the story doesn't end here. The story ends here. So how could we freeze ourselves in this extended Republican moment, as this republic of independent people who work hard, who work for themselves, who rely on themselves, who are good neighbors, who are good citizens, who jealously guard their own rights. It's not to develop through time. It's to expand across space, into Louisiana, where Jefferson said, we will have enough land to farm for hundreds of generations. On one or two occasions, he maybe had a bit too much wine, and he said, thousands of generations. So we could preserve our character in the West. And yet, Jefferson understood that there was a fundamental problem with Louisiana and its purchase. There was nothing in the Constitution that authorized the national government, to add new territory to the United States. And this is a real conundrum, because Jefferson wanted to remain faithful to the Constitution. It was the the license of of the national government's power. And and to to usurp powers that were held by the states or held by the people was, was a real violation of our nation's charter. So what to do? I mean, his first thought, I think was probably the right one, to draft an amendment to the Constitution that would explicitly authorize the purchase of Louisiana. But this wasn't a perfect solution. Peering on his shoulder like a little cartoon devil was James Madison. And Madison, in this wonderful partnership with Jefferson, I mean, they were like the yin and the yang, Batman and the Robin... Uh, the wonder twins of, of early American history, and Madison was, was in some ways perhaps what we would call the more realist of the two. Jefferson perhaps the more idealist. Madison said, don't do it. Don't put out an amendment because there's no guarantee that it will pass. There's no guarantee that, that during this long drawn out process, This deal that we have with France won't be withdrawn. And he said, and look, I was at the Constitutional Convention. We didn't talk about this. This is not an issue that we considered. It's not like Hamilton and his national bank. You know, they discussed creating a national bank. They, They specifically decided not to create one. Not to authorize one. So when Hamilton read between the lines and saw a power for a national bank, there's something inherently disingenuous about that. Here the intentions of the Constitutional convention and the states who ratified the, uh, the, the Constitution. here their intentions are unknown. Let the House of Representatives appropriate the money for Louisiana. Let the Senate ratify the treaty authorizing the purchase, and and just do it. And, And Jefferson here, in a moment that I think is not an abandonment of his principles, but a moment that shows that oftentimes we struggle because our principles come into conflict with one another. Construction on the one hand, but preserving our nation at peace, and preserving our Republican character on the other, where they existed in tension. And Jefferson swallowed hard, and decided to go ahead and buy Louisiana. In some ways, this is a a, a great moment for American history, but in other ways, it's a really troubling one. It's troubling because it shows that even with the best people in positions of power, the powers of the central government have a tendency to grow. And it shows also that no matter how noble one's intentions are unintended consequences that are undesirable as much as they are unanticipated? The West, of course, is going to become one of the chief sources of tension between the North and the South, and is going to figure prominently in the debates that lead up to the dissolution of the Union and the Civil War. Well, Jefferson goes into retirement at the end of his presidency. He has another uh, experiment with the government usurpation of power through the embargo. He turns over the reins of power to James Madison. Madison fights the War of 1812 uh, really in a, in, a, in a fairly noble way. It's one of the few wars where civil liberties are not compromised. And this is a serious war. The United States has been invaded by the world's strongest power. People within the United States speak openly of secession. People within the United States openly resist the national government. If ever there was a time when you would expect the, the, the compromise of basic American liberties, it would be the War of 1812, and yet James Madison refuses to do it. And America survives. And people from the early days begin to patch things up and they begin to look back at the past and continue old friendships. And of course among these people, or among the oldest people left standing in the 1820s, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And they they renew this fantastic correspondence, they talk about the past and the future They talk about all the things that you're not supposed to talk about. They talk about religion, and they talk about politics, as well as their families and their friends and their memories. And they talk about uh, the kids these days. They, uh, They sometimes felt disillusioned by the changes that they saw around them. They sometimes didn't know what to make of this new rising generation. Jefferson once confessed to feeling surrounded by a new generation of men whom we know not and who knows not us. And Adams asked if the lights of the 18th century were to be extinguished by the 19th. But they retained their hope, they retained their optimism, the changes that they had taken such a strong hand in unleashing, as their end neared, America neared its 50th birthday. Thomas Jefferson down at Monticello expressed um, really as his dying wish to live to see the 4th of July. And he was on his deathbed. He did not rise out of it after the end of June 1826. And he kept turning to the men at his bedside. A medical professor from the University of Virginia, which he founded, Dr. Robley Dunglison. His grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, and his grandson-in-law, Nicholas P. Trist. He kept turning to them and asking, is it the 4th? Is it the 4th of July? They were always so disappointed, July 1st and 2nd, to have to shake their heads and tell him no. And every time he asked, his voice got weaker. Every time he asked, the end got nearer. He, He wakes up, On the night of July 3rd, is it the 4th, he asks. And Nicholas Trist, who would go on to uh, negotiate the Treaty of Guadalupe-Eldago, which which added much of the Southwest to the United States after the Mexican War, but who at that point was a West Point dropout, who clearly hadn't spent enough time there to internalize the strictures of the honor code. Nicholas P. Trist uh, looked at Thomas Jefferson, couldn't bear to, to, to let the old man down, Is it the 4th, he was asked on July 3rd? Yes. Yes, said Nicholas Trist. And a lot of historians have have claimed that that those were Jefferson's last words. Is it the 4th? But in reality, if you look at the notes of Dr. Robley Dunglison, you'll see that he then offers Jefferson another dose of what was believed to be life-sustaining medication. And Jefferson, having been assured that it was the 4th of July said to dunglison no doctor, nothing more. And what a horrible story that would be, especially for Nicholas Trist, if Jefferson died right then, right there, July 3rd, 1826. But he didn't. He lingered. He lingered past midnight. He died the next day at 12 noon, 50 years to the hour after the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. And meanwhile, up In Quincy, Massachusetts, John Adams is also on his deathbed. He dies at 5 p.m. on that day. Jefferson was the pen of the revolution. Adams was, in many ways, the mouth of independence. Adams dies at 5 p.m., 50 years to the hour after the Declaration of Independence had been first publicly proclaimed. And his last words are, Thomas Jefferson survives. And I'd like to think that at that very moment, Thomas Jefferson lifted skyward on the wings of angels, was laughing his butt off, because once again he had proven John Adams wrong. (laughs) But I'd also like to think that in many respects, metaphorically at least, John Adams was right, that the spirit of Jefferson did survive. The principles of independence. The principles of the Declaration, that the principles of self government, collective self government as well as individual self government, continued to survive. Rob McDonald is Assistant Professor of History at the United States Military Academy at West Point. You can learn more about Cato University at our website, cato.org.